0: Well, Bobby, we have Bruce on the line here, and he's an expert in a lot of things that uh, you're you're trying to get done. What would you like to ask him?
1: When you're looking at numbers and you're negotiating an apartment deal, how can you sniff out the bad or possibly inflated numbers in a deal?
2: So the biggest thing is assume their numbers are going to be uh, inflated on the income and the collections and deflated on the expenses, but then run your own numbers, do your own rent comps.
0: In this episode, I talk with Bruce Woollett and Bobby Jones. Keep listening to hear how to sniff out bad deals and how to prepare for the things that you cannot see. And now, the show. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital, and I'm very excited for today's show. This is one of our Ask the Expert episodes. We've got two amazing people on the line with us right now. We've got a guy with a ton of experience in, in this and other businesses, Bruce Wollett, and a very motivated and energetic aspiring investor, Bobby Jones. So Bruce is the founder, visionary, and current owner of Bakerson. He grew up in the bakery business in the Twin Cities, and he wanted to pay homage to his now late father, and hence the name Baker Son. He's a proven track record of success through Bakerson's nearly 18 years in business with thousands of individual units bought, repositioned, and sold. Bruce has overseen all aspects of the business, including operations, acquisition, project leadership, equity fund management, property-specific syndications, legal, finance, and more. His focus is finding good deals, while his passion is serving the residents by providing them with one of their basic human needs, which is shelter. That's impressive, Bruce. Um, and that said, you know, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, great, great to have you. You know, it's been been good getting to know you over the, you know, the last little while, or a couple of calls prior to this, but. Uh, um, why don't you start out by giving us a little bit about your background and your history up until you decided that uh, the apartment investing was going to be your, your career or your route?
2: Okay. Yeah. I started in uh, in real estate. Uh, a friend of mine, Gary, who's now passed away, but he was in taxing foreclosures. And I, was, uh, I had a failed business that I had to shut down and broke out even. And I said, you know what? I need to do something. And I'm not very employable, I figured mm-hmm. at the time. So I'm going to go find something to do. And so I started working full time as a minority partner with Gary and we were chasing tax-, tax lien foreclosures and buying houses for pennies on the dollar, literally two, three, four thousand dollars for a house. It's wow. pretty rough at the time. This would have been in the year 2000, 2001. two thousand one. Mm-hmm. And so we, we were doing that. And I said, Gary, you're leaving so much money on the table. You, you could offer like this guy here, you're going to wait for it to go for foreclosure, but you run the risk that they're going to pay their, you know, $12,000 in back taxes. do we offer him five grand, offer him 10 grand, you know, these houses were probably worth 40 or 45 at the time. Uh-huh. He said, nope, that's not how I work. He was very, very focused on buying the taxing and then working out a, a deal with the property owner, buying the property and then redeeming the taxes. And so then he bought two houses. And at that time I'd read that book, rich dad, poor dad. And I said, Oh, I can get into real estate. So I told Gary, I said, Hey, you know, those two houses you have on 16th street, mm-hmm. in Southern, why don't Why don't you sell those to me? So we worked out a, an arrangement of what he'd sell those to me for. Um, one of them we fixed up, sold retail. The other one we had gutted down to the studs and they're right next to each other. And a guy came and offered it to, I'll buy it as is 50 grand. We're like, wow, hey, I'm in this 35. This is a pretty good deal. So, um, we just, we're not finishing the work. We sold it to him. And then I started with that. I was, uh, I picked up, had those two houses and then I had a house up for a rental, a duplex and a triplex mm-hmm. and the duplex, triplex and the single family house were rentals. And I had other people's money, hundred percent financed by investors. And we just were kicking out your monthly income. I wanted to get it. I was doing the taxing foreclosures uh, full time in the these side deals part-time I said you know I want to get into the real estate full-time I said Gary I love what you're doing but that's that's not fast enough it's too slow that's not what I want to do Mm long-term so I told the guys I was partnered with that I want to go off and do houses and they said you know we're going to stick stick in their business they're in the trades and they're doing really well so at that time Jack Martin entered my life and said hey Bruce why don't uh, why don't we partner up on these deals I'll be your contractor he's a general contractor I said great so we started picking up houses that way at that time, this is 2002, and both Jack and I worked, our, our fathers worked together at the Woollett mm-hmm. Bakery in Minneapolis. That's where the name Bakerson comes from. Jack's dad and my dad were partners. And as a note, Jack and I, or I mean, we're, we're co-workers working for my grandfather. Just real quick, Jack and I are, are not in business together now about four years, but we're still very good friends. So we're mm-hmm. very fortunate to have that. So to fast track, what happens is finding these houses more than we could possibly fix and sell, and, I'll, and I said, what do we do with these? And at that time, I was introduced to the idea of wholesaling uh, by Jim Staples. So then we, uh, well, I went to a training course in Seattle. Mm-hmm. A man from Arlington, Texas flew up there, trained me there on how to flip a property in Phoenix. And we got it under contract with a buyer while I was up there. And I was sold. I said, if a guy from Texas can meet me in Seattle, work a deal in Phoenix, I and mean, this is, there's, this is a no-brainer. Yeah. And we flipped over 60 homes that, that was in December of 2002. In 2003, we flipped over 60 homes that way, wow. and we did 47 to one buyer. And so that was exciting. That's how we got into real estate, and it was a major machine. We did you know, close to 300 homes a year, and in some years did over 2,000 transactions, double, triple, quadruple escrows, and mm-hmm. the busiest month was over 30 homes, and the busiest day I, I, I like to share is we had seven escrows at three title companies, and at that point, I told the guys, I said, when we sell, we're using our title company, period. Because I'm not running around doing this again. It was like, it, it, was, it was mind-numbing. But yeah. we got it done. So as we were doing that, the market shifted into technology. And I didn't adopt technology, and I didn't go that way. So I said, "Where do we? how do we fix this? We started flipping. We said, hey, people aren't wholesaling apartment buildings. So we started doing that. We did that for what, 25 or 26 buildings that we'd get under contract and flip to another investor. And we said, well, that's pretty fun. But then we ended up into uh, saying, we could do this ourselves. And we had a partner with another group in Phoenix, and we did a 64-unit and 120-unit with them. And I said, wow, this is awesome. Now, this instead of flipping in 52 days, this is 18 to 24 months. Set up syndications. We get acquisition fee, disposition fee. We get a project management fee, asset management fee. And so we were able to run our business that way. And I said, okay, this is good. So that's what brings us up to current. I can tell you about future later in the call. Yeah, that that brings know, me to the I, I covered a lot really fast, but we've done a lot of business in real estate. Yeah. You know,
0: and I, I think a lot of people do the same thing you did where they, where they start in single family homes, you know, and that's, that's something that, you know, I, I started with single family homes. I think when, when I started, I, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around what it would take to do an apartment building. But as, as I tried to scale, you know, same, same thing was like, okay, well, you know, we're, we're doing this with single family homes. Why not, you know, do, do something bigger so let's 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 focus right now what is your motivation as far as why you're doing what you're doing what's your big burning why for this
2: well this started in houses when we sold houses we sold to investors and we sold to homeowners and we sold to homeowners it was it was really fun because we were selling to homeowners at a time when they could not get bank mortgages mm-hmm. because the properties we were selling were 40 45 50, 000, and the minimum loans by a bank was 50 plus thousand and they're really really conserved at what they were lending in phoenix market after the crash yeah so we are able to set up a system to get homeowners into homes with private financing and many of those people i'm I'm guessing over a hundred of the people that we sold houses to still own the houses every once in a while run a random list and it's it's pretty amazing many are paid off and so i said you know we're servicing the homeowner that didn't have another solution that wanted to be a homeowner had all the capabilities but couldn't get bank financing because of the market conditions. And we were able to fill that void for a, a short window of, well, four, three, four years. Yeah, And that translated into, when I got into apartments, we were, we were doing the, the buy, fix and sell. And I realized that I have a passion for the residents. I realized that residents are so underserved by property owners across this country. And it's a travesty how these owners are so focused on the almighty dollar that they forget who's supplying those dollars to them, which is the resident. Yeah. And, one day I sat down, did quick math, $700 resident in five years becomes a $42,000 customer. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a big deal. We're going to $42,000 of these people's money and we're going to treat them like that. No, we're not going to do that anymore in our business. Yeah. And so we work with our property management companies and we are adamant that they treat them with dignity, regardless of their level of class, regardless, as long as they follow the rules and live according to the, the community direction, then they're welcome to be there pay on time will treat you as good as the, the investors that come in or the, the subs that come in or anybody. It's like, they're, they're no different. They're humans too.
0: Yeah. And one thing you pointed out to me on our, our call a week or so ago is is the term you use. You use resident, okay? I think most people in this business use the word tenant. Can you explain why
2: you say resident instead of tenant? Well, a tenant to me is a, you an know, office building. You have an office building, and you're renting, you're the tenant, you don't live there. Yeah. Where a resident lives at the place they rent, and they're they're residents, and when we call them residents, instead of tenants. It just feels like it's more personal. Yeah. And I've always, yeah, I've, we've called them residents for a very long time, and that is why, because they are residents. They live where they rent. Mm-hmm. Um, I know some people. My wife accused me of living at work, so maybe maybe I'm a resident to of my office. Too, but, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm kidding. But but yeah, that's that, that's why because the residents, it's it very descriptive of who they are. Yeah, and I I think it's it's
0: a, a different mindset. You know, like I said, when you're when you're talking about a tenant, you're you're talking about a transaction. And I mean, you're, you're focusing on the residents and, you know, I, I very much appreciate that. And, you know, looking at somebody as a $40,000 customer versus a, a, a C-class tenant or a plumber or a, whatever they do for a living, I, I think that's, that's admirable in, in, a, in a lot of ways. So let, let's do this. Why don't, why don't you give us a brief history or rundown of either one deal or, you know, kind of a sample type project that you
2: guys do? Uh, one of my favorite deals happened to be one of the earlier ones mm-hmm. because it was what ignited the fire. And it's that fire is ignited differently later on in the transactions because there's nothing like the first big deal that you do. And there's two of them that we did at the same time. So I'll cover both of them. And the reason I like them is because they were our entry into this dream where I thought apartment owners were these big wits, corporations, ultra wealthy. I didn't realize that most apartment owners of small, under 100 unit buildings, many of them are just regular people that have mm-hmm. apartments as investments. They could be a business owner, they could be a carpenter, and who knows what they did, a construction owner, or it could be a, an equity fund. We're seeing more of that now as we transition into the, informa- you know, the information age is, is really taken yeah. off. But so the, the two deals, For the first deal I'll discuss is a 64 unit, and really quick on that one, we bought it 64 one bedroom units. And what we did is there was uh, 60 one-bedroom units and four two-bedroom. And on the sixty one bedroom we took half of them, 30, and we converted those to studios and two-bedrooms. Okay. So, so when we got done, we had uh, 20 studios and 20, 24 one-bedrooms. I'm sorry, the 64 units we we'd convert or 60 units we converted, not 30, 60 units. Uh-huh. But we had 24 two-bedrooms. 21 bedrooms and 20 studios and it completely would change the demographics of the resident that lives there because people that live in a two-bedroom take a lot longer to move out they're more likely to be a long-term resident and one of the things you mentioned just to uh, jump in on is you said a transaction when you treat this as an annuity as opposed Mm -hmm. to a transaction you look at it a lot different if you look at a a transaction month after month you're collecting that money that's okay but that's transactional what if you looked at annuity how can you invest in that property and in that residence so that they don't leave because I did the math and vacant units don't pay the bills. No, And they never will. And no matter how clever you are, a vacant unit doesn't pay the bills. And letting that resident go over a small item or because they don't like them or because they're, they they have to be late consistently, but, but they're always paying ultimately, mm-hmm. work it out with them. Figure out how you can make it work so they can stay there long term because that vacant unit can hurt you. Yeah. So then that, so that was a 64 unit. And when I seen that, happening it was awesome but what really sold me was I was one of the things is I was walking there and there was an elderly lady struggling carrying a tiny little bag with one of those fold-up airport carts you know not airport cars the carts people use for hauling their briefcase at the airport yeah and she step at a time and I walked up and I grabbed her bag and I, I ran it up the stairs and I waited till she got up there and and I said I said hi uh, what's your name she said Dottie I said oh Dottie you live here she said yes I do Yes, said you like it here she says I do but I'm on the second floor. I really want to be on the first floor. And we had just purchased the building. Mm -hmm. I said, let me see what I can do. Ran down the stairs. And the people were meeting. We were meeting with some investors and other people on the property. And I left that meeting to help this lady. And I walked over to that Alex, our property manager, said, Alex, we got to get Dottie into first level. And she told me her story. She's a widow, elderly lady, she's like 84, and she's tired going down the stairs. So he, he said, he'll see what he can do. Later, I walked to the property and she flagged me down and said, oh, they moved me in a brand new unit. I'm so excited. I'm in a studio. The rent went down. But she's really excited. She went from a one bedroom to a studio on first floor. Uh-huh. and All the things were answered. I was like, well, that was not the intent. I just felt like it was the right thing to do. Yeah. So that was a 64 unit. The second one is 120 unit in Glendale. And it was 34 plexes on a property that were individually parceled buildings. So there's okay. 30, 32 parcels, 30. Building parcels, if I remember right, and then uh, two common area parcels, mm-hmm. and just watching that transform without only you know, we bought it for just over uh, around 6 million, 5.8 million. We mm-hmm. only put one hundred and fifty thousand into it, and seventeen months later we sold it for eight million. Wow! I was like, wow! All we did it was operational. It was horribly run from the so the one was a complete construction remodel, vacate vacate all the units, rebuild it. The other one was let's work with the people we have there and let's make it work. So it's completely two different projects. Both of those did high teens, low 20 IRR for the investors. So that was really, really exciting. And it's okay, we can do this. We can, we can do this on our own. That was a department group, another group that was working there. So we can do this on our own with third-party property management, third-party contractors. And since then we did, uh, we did four more projects in, in Phoenix and we've done 11 in Tucson. Nice. And that's five years
0: yeah i mean two completely different uh strategies you know one one operations one one construction uh you know i think that just shows the breadth of your guys' expertise there at bakerson you you can do you can do both you can manage well and and you can manage the construction well so uh testament to to what you guys are doing i think it's really great so what's Thank what's you. next for you and and what's next for for bakerson
2: well as uh, as you might know the market's tight the buildings are getting swallowed up like we went to tucson five four years ago there was hardly there was was vacant buildings, there was a lot of troubled assets, there was a people say, why would you go to Tucson? And now there's like nothing left. Buying down Mm -hmm. there is kind of like Phoenix was two years ago. And it's really difficult to find deals with the spread we want. And the other thing is, even though we're getting in and out of the projects in uh, 18 to 24 months, or even 36 months, you know, that's the longer term than it was flipping houses. The challenge we have is it's not creating any wealth outside of cash. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to figure out how can we best Push this long term. Mm -hmm. And so my son, since the day he started working with me like seven years ago, he says, Dad, we got to get into buy and hold. And I I wasn't excited. I was addicted. I had adrenaline addiction to flips. Mm -hmm. But as I'm looking at these numbers and and pondering this, I see, you know what? We can and really have a focus on the resident. I really struggle selling to an underperforming operator, concerned that they're going to run that property on the ground. Why should I should I care about that? I really shouldn't. Once the transaction's over, let them do their thing. I can't control that. Mm-hmm. But it does resonate. So, what if we bought and never sold? And Vince is my son. So that's what I've been talking about. <laughs> he's kind of the seed he's been watering it. And so we're going to get into legacy investing with perpetual investments, investors, where we can teach them how to compound their returns with the same dollar over a ten-year period. They can be in multiple projects with the same dollar, and mm-hmm. that compounding of compounding returns in real estate is what we're going to do. And we're not the first one to the show. There's other people that do it. They just don't call call it that. Yeah. But we want to buy with a tent to never sell. And if we sell, it'll be for an advantageous reason besides just freeing up capital or paying investors back. Hopefully, they'll have had all their money out in three to five years. Yeah, So, that's kind of a view of where we're going.
0: Okay. Now, the compounding, are you doing like cash-out refis or, or how, how are you structuring that for the investors?
2: Yeah, there would be cash-out refi. where We do a, the first refi with year three. Okay. Um, and then depending on the market condition and what we can get out, you may only get you know 70 to 80% of their money out at that point. Mm-hmm. And then either do a, another refi or if it's a Fannie or Freddie, you can do a supplemental yep. in year five and they get the rest of their cash out. And then it'd still be in the deal as a percentage owner with the return in as long as we own the property. Okay. So once they get their money back, we don't cut them out of the deal. We keep them in there. Yep. And the motivation for that is that they would invest the money in our projects and want to continue. So that once they get their money back, they say, Bruce, what else you got? Oh, we have another project over here you can invest yeah. in. And the same dollar gets invested. Or if they take it somewhere else, that's fine too. Now they're still getting two returns on the same dollar. Yeah. Our return so, to wherever else. They so theoretically, if somebody put a hundred thousand
0: dollars with you at the three-year mark, you may give them fifty to seventy thousand dollars back, which they could invest into another property. They still have a percent ownership. They're still getting money at the at the five-year mark. They're getting the rest of their capital back, which they can reinvest into the property. And so, so theoretically, that $100,000 could end up being parked into several deals over 10 years.
2: Yeah, I think if three to four deals, depending on market conditions, you know, we, mm-hmm. there's things that will obviously shape that. But with the current projections that I'm reading, that probably four deals and in, mm-hmm. you know, get into their fourth, just into their fourth deal by year 10. Yeah. And then the deals where they're, they're
0: cashed out of, they're still receiving that passive income. So, so basically, you can take that $100,000 and in 10 years, create four different passive income streams.
2: Yes. And that's where they get the IRR that goes through the roof mm-hmm. um, on their money because they're getting a return on money that's not there. They still own the shares. That's what's pretty, pretty awesome. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I like that idea. You
0: know, that's what I think a lot of people are modeling. They don't, like I said, they, they don't call it the same thing, but I think several operators are, are going that direction now. Well, we're at the point now where we should introduce our aspiring investor. Uh, we got Bobby Jones on the line. He lives in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He's a former, I can never say this word right, nurse anesthesiologist. Okay, Just one of those words that I have a hard time, tongue twister for me. Uh, But he's a former nurse anesthesiologist turned apartment investor. He's passionate about helping people learn how to get out of the rat race through passive income strategies. He's the founder of On Call Capital, where he works with medical and other working professionals to invest in cash flowing alternative opportunities outside of the traditional stock market. So that said, Bobby, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Brian. It's a real privilege to be here today.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate you, and I appreciate everything that you've done. You know, we've corresponded quite a bit. You know, talked several times on the phone, and you know, really appreciate our our time together. Why don't you start by giving us a, a background and your background in history up until you
1: decided that hey, apartments is where I want to go? Okay, basically, grew up. I went to school to get a bachelor's degree in business, but when I came out of school, it was not a great time to come out with a business degree back in two thousand three, and I decided that I was going to be a firefighter, Mm -hmm. so I went to take an EMT class, and when I was in the emergency department down at Tampa General, uh, there was this old salty dog nurse who said, you know, if I were you, I'd become a a nurse anesthetist, and I said, a nurse, oh, what's a (laughs) test?
2: And
1: He basically, you know, convinced me that this was the way to go with my career, and so from then on, I, I dedicated myself to becoming a nurse, and then they're on, um, Graduating from school, I I worked in healthcare for 13 years, uh, eight of them as a CRNA. And towards the end of that time period, I was working as a 1099 CRNA and had some downtime in between different gigs and Mm -hmm. had a chance to take my kids to school and meet them for lunches. And, you know, I was able to coach some elementary school kids in a running club. And so having the time freedom to do those things mattered so much more to me than being a nurse anesthesiologist at that point. And I had felt like somebody who was on a hamster wheel for quite a long period of time. You get into a good job, you're making very good money, but you're trapped. You can't take vacations when you want to. You can't do the things that you want to do when you (laughs) want to do them. It's all based on whatever your job allows you to do. Around that time, I, I read Rich Dad's cash flow quadrant and discovered that and said, Man, I gotta I gotta move to that right side with the mm-hmm. investors. That's where my focus started to go. I, I saw so many people in my line of work that were burnt out, but they had no choice. They didn't know what to do. And so that's really kind of what drives me today is helping other healthcare professionals strategize how to build different ways to have different streams of income.
0: Yeah. So, usually, I ask people to focus on your motivation, but I think you baked a lot of that in there. So, your 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 motivation was basically to to get your time back, to, absolutely to spend time with your kids, to be the coach, to be the father that you wanted to be, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Nice. That was a big thing for me that I, I realized that I how much I hadn't been focusing on that mm-hmm. up to that point. I had really focused so much on my career, and all of a sudden, my oldest daughter turns eight, nine years old, and it's like, wow, another decade and she's out of the house. Yeah. Like, what am I going to do in this next decade? Am I just going to keep working 40, 50 hours a week and miss a lot of those great times with her? Or am I going to make my kids more of a focus of my career? Yeah,
0: that's something that definitely resonates with me. I'm, I'm active duty military. I've got a daughter that turned 21 two weeks ago. And because of deployments and exercises, I've missed most of her birthdays. So just one of those, that's that resonates with me because that's, that's the reason that I'm planning on retiring next year, and this is what I'm doing because I got three younger kids nine seven, and five year old to I, I don't want to miss eighteen out of twenty one birthdays anyway that, that's that's great now I understand uh, you you've invested passively in a couple of deals so far so what motivated you to to invest passively in those first
1: well um i I took that traditional route where I tried to get into single family homes and <laughs> I purchased one uh, single family home and it has been it was a headache from start to finish, essentially dealing with the bank to get the loan and and then trying to get a tenant in and, and realizing that wow our property management team is is not doing the right job. So now we replace the property manager and mm-hmm. then an AC unit gets stolen and, and now you've got to replace an AC unit because you didn't have a tenant in it and now the insurance company won't cover it. So it was this cascade of nightmares. And I said, there's so many people who are successful in real estate. I'm not getting something here. There's something yeah. that I, I and obviously I learned a ton from this experience. So I, I could probably write a book about all of the, mm-hmm. the the lessons that I learned, but it turned me on to investing more passively mm-hmm. and and not you know, I, I thought that investing in single family homes was going to be passive, investing in turnkey properties would yeah. be passive, and it was anything but. No, and and so that's when I found out a little bit more about multifamily investing, and the more I did the research, the more I, that's it for me. That's where I need to be, and then I I invested in uh one of the. I guess it was, it's a property that's actually here in North Carolina over in Raleigh through the passive income investing folks. And I started getting the checks from that before I got anything from my single family home. So the light bulb went off and I said, mm-hmm. okay, th- I'm, I'm all in now. So that's, that's really where I turned my focus to that. And then I thought to myself, if I can do this, why can't so many other people that I know do this and have that same freedom?
0: Yeah. Good, good, good. Well, Bobby, we have uh, Bruce on the line here and he's an expert in a lot of things that uh, you're, you're trying to get done. Uh, what would you like to ask him?
1: All right. So I, I've got several questions. So one of the first ones is when you're looking at numbers and you're negotiating an apartment deal, how can you sniff out the bad or possibly inflated numbers in a deal? And are there some instances where maybe that doesn't even matter to you because of your own numbers that you're, you're bringing to the table of, of what a good deal looks like.
2: Yeah, we did a little bit, little bit of both. You do want to know what is the market? What is the expense ratio? You know, you had a 40% expense ratio, 45% against the income. Where where are the costs? And then you, you have costs per unit. And I don't have all those memorized as well as my son does, but like you have money you put aside each month for maintenance and repairs into the future. And, Many times when people write their write their underwriting, they leave those out when they want a property to look better than it is. And it's just, it's a glaring, obvious that, hey, in the future, this person is going to move out and there's going to be a cost. There's there's a certain cost to maintain the unit, even if they stay there. So that's one of the things that they'll sometimes just, oh, we didn't put that in. We've just completely remodeled the building. Mm-hmm. Well, they're still going to have expenses. You're still going to have failures. You're still going to have residents that cause damage beyond their damage deposit. The other thing is when you're looking at these, the area that is, Typically, for us, has been the steepest learning curve are the things you can't see. And there's two areas, and that's plumbing and HVAC. We have missed the biggest, had the biggest misses in those. The good news is we've made it up in other areas. So all in all, the projects have been profitable. But the HVAC has been quite a bit more than what we anticipated. They failure rates higher than what was estimated by the previous owner. This oh, we're replacing like a 107-unit building. We're replacing 7 to 10 units a year. And then our first year we replaced 15. It's like, well, that's a little different than what he told us. The failure is much higher. And their books, you can only go back the last year or two and they might put these some things in the CapEx that should be in expenses. They might put things in expenses that should be in CapEx. They might bury the labor costs in there or the payroll costs. So there's so many things you slice and dice out of that that could be a mishit. But I have a way that I look at a property and there's a formula that I run in basically in my head to say okay this is a good deal or it's not a good deal based on if it's a mastermind unit or not but that just comes with experience so the biggest thing is assume their numbers are going to be uh, inflated on the income and the collections and deflated on the expenses but then run your own numbers do your own rent comps that's probably the rent comps and then figure out what the expenses are age of the building check for copper you know copper wire copper plumbing as opposed to uh, aluminum wiring and cast iron plumbing you know things like that have caught us. Uh, off guard, and the reason I have a lot of good answers is we've had a lot of good experiences. <laughs> Mis- <laughs> missteps along the way, right? Very true, very true.
1: And that that actually answers my second question pretty well because it it had to do with missing something in due diligence. How does conservative underwriting have something to do with helping you with those misses? And and I, I feel like you pretty much hit that one on the head. So,
2: well, the other um, thing when, you, when you're buying a property, as far as the pricing goes, there's three. Actually, four metrics that can be used consistently. One is rent per unit. If it's a studio, rent per square foot. Purchase price per unit and purchase price per square foot. If any one of those is off, like you say, everything looks good, but man, their rent per square foot is a, a buck eighty a foot, and the rest of the market's a buck twenty. That means they're pushing the top end. And if there's a little bit of a hiccup in the market, the income is going to come down. So there's things like that you want to look for. But the, that's the I usually say three, but also rent per unit is pretty important. Things look at on the purchase side.
1: Great, great. The next one is about loan structure. I'm still very much learning about the different structures of loans for apartment buildings. Can you talk about some of those different loan structures and how one can benefit investors, one can benefit operators, or or maybe there's a couple of them that really benefit both?
2: So it really depends on the asset, and there's so many options. Like you could have a podcast just on one type of loan and spend the whole hour on that. So I'm gonna share what we've done. And the the biggest thing is we buy properties that are oftentimes 50% vacant or higher. And so there's no cash flow. There's not a bank or a credit union or agency that's going to finance that property without some kind of cross collateralizer or a bulletproof balance sheet from somewhere else of your asset portfolio. So you go to hard money and it's currently, we're getting around, you know, seven to 9% on the hard money. You could do a bridge to perm, a bridge bridge loan, and then go into for agency. But even those, they didn't like the assets that we were buying. It was very difficult. So we went with pretty high interest money. But the, the goal is to get in and out of it as fast as you can and get rid of that. So then there's the options. There's, you know, obviously there's recourse and non-recourse. Before the last economic turn, recourse was fairly popular. Anybody that's older has always done recourse. They say, well, if you're good at your job, why do you care? What's the risk? Well, there's a lot of things that come at risk. And if banks will offer a non-recourse, take it. So there's some credit unions and some insurance companies, and then agency debt is non-recourse where they, they can only go after the asset itself and not go after the individuals should the market swing and you be stuck with a underperforming asset. But the goal, of course, is always to service them. But the best loan that we have found is pretty fascinating, I think is a HUD loan, but you cannot get a HUD loan on a purchase. It'll take you minimum nine months to get that from application to funding, but it's amortized over over 40 years, and you can get additional supplemental loans along the way. And you can recast the loan as the property value increases. And that process is relatively simple. So any of the legacy ones, we're going to go with the HUD. And that's far extreme of the loans. But for purchases of a performing asset, anytime you get agency debt, it seems like that's the best. Or we have seen some really good rates with local, regionalized credit unions and insurance companies. Okay, great. So credit unions, insurance companies, they they should be in the community. Like in Tucson, Pima Federal Credit Union is one that's in Tucson. So they're very good at that market. They're probably not as good to lend in Raleigh, North Carolina, for example. Yeah, it makes sense. Something that we do, I mean, we
0: we are hyper-focused on a certain area of South Carolina, on what we're doing, upstate South Carolina. But, you know, we we try to have our insurance broker, our mortgage broker, all the professionals that that service and, and, and help us out, are located in that area. So when we're looking for some sort of debt structure where it doesn't quite fit into agency, we have people who know the local bankers and can say, hey, this credit union or this bank has the best product for what you're looking for. And so I think that that really has helped us a lot is knowing the local people and being able to get the, lo- the references to the banks and credit unions that have the best product.
2: One of the things, you can get the best rates out there, but things to be careful of, are uh, defecence, yield maintenance, and prepayment penalties. You could have a great loan, and in year four you decide you want to refinance with another institution, and all of a sudden you've got $150,000 defecence that you have to pay, or yield maintenance, that you have to pay, and those are pretty technical terms, but those things are, look for the prepayment structure. They're all, defecence and yield maintenance are basically prepayment penalties. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm paying the loan off early, so just be careful. The step down is very, very important to get, if, if your exit's going to be shorter than what the prepayment is. So make sure it aligns with your vision of your goal of the property. Awesome.
1: I've listened to a couple of the podcasts you've been on, Bruce, and I know that your family is a big part of your business. I have three children of my own, and I'd love to pass this business down someday. How did you get your start involving your son and brother, and what are some of the pitfalls to avoid when
2: you're working with family? The biggest secret in working in a family business is leave work at work, and leave home at home. If you are not able to compartmentalize that, don't bring your family in because you can't bring your family challenges to work and you can't bring your work challenges to home. The biggest thing that I had growing up in a bakery business with my dad is he said, never discuss business over the dinner table. So we're sitting around eating dinner. He would not talk about work because he didn't want people to think there was decisions made without somebody that's not there. As well as that's a, that's a rumor mill and a gossip you know, that's where gossip begins. So you got to be very careful about that. So that's, if you're in the family business. That's for sure. Now I've been blessed with six children and grandchildren, number nine and 10 are on the way. So there's a lot of opportunity to bring family in. And I have a brother-in-law who's our asset manager that's very involved in a son-in-law. Same thing there. You know, when we visit, if I'm working with him all day and then we go to their house for, we go to my sister's place, you know, brother-in-law and we visit, there's no work. We're only talking social life and we're able to separate it. And that's one thing that people have told me that year. That is genius. And I said, well, that's some experience. That's what you need to do to run a good business is keep them separate. Just like you don't want your co that work for you to bring their baggage to work either um, and be clicky. So that's the challenge. That the other challenge you're gonna have is you have non-family members that might feel like, hey, they're not included. So I'm very conscientious of that and make sure that when we're making decisions and making discussions, it's not about me and my son and my brother-in-law or my son-in-law. It's it's about the the Bakerson family. And so I tell people we have the we have the family and then we have a few that are adopted and Treat <laughs> treat them the same. So those are some tidbits, I guess you could think about, but that's, if you're going to do it, make sure you separate the two.
0: Fantastic. I like that. I mean, work at work, home and home compartmentalize. And yeah, I can see potential pitfalls doing that. I mean, my, one of my oldest daughters asked to help out with certain things and we're talking about having her help out with podcasts, but that's one thing that I think I'm definitely going to adopt if we bring her on the, as a podcast editor,
2: but work at work, home at home you yeah. had asked the question that how did they, how did they get involved? And one of the, my son, he, he went to Finland for a year. He met his wife there and he came back and then ultimately got married and he was going to school to be a diesel mechanic. And he, he did really well through a Ford program, won a big award. He was a, an ACE student in End up going that route where he gets some some grants for the for the education. So he's he's going to be a diesel mechanic. And he went to work at the shop and said, man, he just, it was miserable. You, when you weren't working, you weren't, weren't getting paid. It was all piecework as employees. And they were doing oil changes. He wasn't being a diesel mechanic, even though he was going to school for. And he came to me and said, dad, I want to come work for you. And I said, no, you can't. And He says, why not? I said, because you got to work for your uncle, Mike, who was worked for My brother was working for me at the time. You got to work for him first. Mm-hmm. Work for your uncle and for one year. And then after one year, we'll evaluate. So he worked there, worked with them for like 13 or 14 months. And he worked for Mike and then Mike worked for me. He kept that buffer in there and they did their house. That's when we were doing a ton of wholesale houses. And then all of a sudden he came in and he took over acquisition. He's been just phenomenal. So that was how he came into the business. The other Nate was, he had broke his back in a car accident, and so he, when he got healed up, he went back into construction, and every day he got home, he lay on the, lay on the chair and he couldn't, he says, he couldn't do anything. He says, this construction's killing me. So then I asked him about that, and so then, boom, all of a sudden, he's working with me. He's buying out of all materials and project leadership. So two of the examples, and it's been more that's, they have come to me looking for something than me reaching out. That's definitely
1: been how I've structured. I mean, my oldest is nine. And she comes to me and asks about my business. You know, how's your business going? How, you know, what'd you do today and, and stuff. And so I've just tried to feed little tidbits and w- when we talk certain strategies and things, but nothing, I am doing my best not to be forceful because she's gonna have to find her own way as are all of my children. But it's hard as a parent to not wanna say, this is awesome, <laughs> you know, like I, I love this, this is awesome. But, uh, and that actually leads me in, into my last question which has to do with presentation because I think I've been pretty clear about how apartment syndications and passive income have just changed my life. And I tend to get very excited When I talk about real estate and this can sometimes overwhelm potential investors and be a a bit off putting. And so what are some strategies that you have used to maybe show more patience while still building that excitement and presenting a call to action for people, whether it's your family who are coming to work with you or other people coming to work with you or your investors that you're wanting to talk
2: to about deals? This has been kind the, of the steepest learning curve I had work, have had working with investors. I, I'm such a focus on the property, focus on the resident, and other people have worked with the investors. But the way that I have learned, the best thing is instead of sharing everything you want, all the excitement that you have or that I have, what I've done is I've started asking a lot of questions. Everything around questions. Ask them, what are you looking for in an investment? Have you considered real estate? Most of the questions are going to be, what do you know about real estate? Do you know how it works? Have you heard of syndications? How, do you know how syndications work? What went right? Like in your investments, what went right? What went wrong? What did you want? What would you like to do different? What controls do you want in place? What safety levels do you need? You know, some of that want so much safety that you should tell them, just go into tax-free mutual, municipal bonds and you're safe. Just invest there because they don't want no risk. Anything that's going to be above 7% is considered high risk. And so we're doing 12%, 15 18% return to investors. That's a high-risk investment. And that's real. So, find out by asking a lot of questions and then you can answer those questions based on your position. And then all of a sudden it's about them as opposed to what I say is spilling the candy in the lobby or, or, or spewing everything out for them, all your excitement, they're overwhelmed. So it's best if you ask the questions first and then once you get the, all of the questions, you write them down, feverishly on your yellow pad, and then you go back and you address those questions. You know, in real estate, one of the, how, we, how we mitigate risk. Okay, one of the reasons why real estate is, is good, it is cyclical, but here's why it's protected different than the stock market. You're not, it's never going to go to zero, the values. And there's other things you can share. So, But ask a lot of questions first to find out what their pain points are. And then if you have answers to those, you address. If you don't, you just tell them. It looks like we're a mismatch this probably isn't for you. I told that somebody the other day and boy, she crawled back so fast. It was hilarious. I said, yeah, I don't think we're a match for that. It looks like you you want too much stability. Wait, what do you mean by that? And so she started asking me questions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Well, we're, we're about uh, at, at time to wrap up. Bruce, Bobby, I appreciate both of you guys for coming on. I think that this was a great episode. You both added a ton of value. Bobby, I, I love your enthusiasm about it too. So don't change that at all. But uh <laughs> Anyway, ask you both the same question. Bruce, you first. How, how can our listeners get in touch with
2: you? Well, there's uh, three ways. Bakerson.com, B-A-K-E-R-S-O-N.com. I uh, tell people I'm an S-O-B, a son of a baker. And then uh, email is bruce at bakerson.com. Okay. Or you could call me at my cell is 520-808-9111. And I always challenge people to call me and I've been getting phone calls. So please call me, call me, call me. Call me. 520-808-9111.
0: Okay. And I'll have that in the show notes. So, you know, for people listening, you don't have to hit the uh, 10 second back button to write it down. It'll be in the show notes. All right. And and Bobby, same question for you.
1: Yeah. Folks can visit my website at www.oncallinvestments.com. And while you're there, you can pick up a free special report that I have. It's about true diversification, what your financial advisor's not telling you. They can also email me if they're interested, bobby at oncallinvestments.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Bobby Jones, or you can call me directly. My number is 336-403-2256. I hope to hear from you and I'd really appreciate the opportunity to be on this show today.
0: All right. Yeah. Once again, thanks both for coming on. It It was a pleasure speaking to you guys. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at foreoakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show. So pull out your phone, tap subscribe and leave us a five star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.